Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jerry Thompson. I'm joined by Dave Shields. Dave, I think I think today's the day where I have to talk about what I want to call the podcast going forward. I'm excited. Well, uh, I don't even want to call it this. Okay, so I, I just did another podcast this week that just went up uh, with Mason Clark. And he asked for the inside scoop on what I was going to call it. And I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll just tell you straight up, whatever. And then we talked about it a little bit. And the whole thing is kind of weird to me where, oh man, especially after I shared this Buffalo story with you, it's like these running stories of me just like feeling like a jackass or whatever. Uh, but I, I feel weird. So I, I want to call it the Jerry T podcast. And again, want is strong. And then it'll be with Dave Shields, which in theory protects me uh, from having to rebrand again, potentially, if you end up having to leave the podcast for some reason, which, you know, I, I don't blame anyone. It's understandable. People have lives, et cetera. Uh, Brian, Brian tried to call me today, by the way. I was, I was asleep at uh, 6 p.m. when he tried to call me. But Arena Decklist didn't work out for a lot of reasons. And... I ran into some issues with branding where, you know, if, if someone was not very, very online, specifically on Twitter, they might not know that I did not have a podcast. And when I changed my Twitch name over to Arena Decklis, if you're scrolling through the Twitch channel, you might not realize that Arena Decklis is actually me streaming. And maybe you would click on me, but you wouldn't click on, you know, what sounds like a random YouTube channel's name or whatever. So I feel like a jackass for saying it, but I think that like the the name, the brand recognition or whatever of just using my name is probably a good thing. It is beneficial. I would hugely agree with you. And listen, I, I don't think you should sell yourself short of the brand recognition that you've built over time. I do think there's a little bit of a bait there in implying for a second that you actually stream. So I will I'm call you saying, on that. I'm, I'm saying both in theory and in the past, this has happened. Like, random people have clicked on it and then they're just like, wait, is this Jerry? And they just had no idea. And it was yeah. like, oh, well maybe I would get more of those people if I just used my name. And listen, I think names in general are silly. So I, I love this, call it what it is, right? It's it's your podcast and I'm here joining you and I'm happy to be here always. Um, but I, I think we can maybe twist this into some level of commitment that you'll maybe jump back onto Twitch and stream more at some point. Honestly, I, w I would like to. It is just difficult. As as a fellow ADHD haver, like, do you feel like you could, you know, sit in front of a monitor and play magic for six hours while interacting with chat and try and provide like a compelling viewer like viewer experience? Like, no, no, it's, no. It's it hard, sounds man. incredibly difficult. It sounds incredibly difficult. I'm not saying I wouldn't try, and and, and maybe that's yeah. something we give a go at some point, right? I think we've talked a little bit about a potential co-stream or what have you of some upcoming tournaments, and that sounds exciting to me. Um, I don't know if I'd be able to handle it, but certainly something that we can give a go. When when you play leagues, what is it like? Do you just rattle off like all five matches? No, I'm in between. So it really depends on the pace of play of my opponent. And if my opponent keeps a really good pace, then I'll usually just keep going. But the second they he they hesitate for more than 20 seconds, I'm all tabbed into some other video or on a stream or what have you. And yeah. that certainly has a negative impact on my win rate but that I can't resist. Did you ever play Eternal? I did for a little while. And where are you going with this? 
So there, there was this game mode that was terrible, but I kind of liked where you just played against bots. It was like you, you draft, but then play against bots, you know? Okay. And then the pace of play is just like really fast. You're basically in control of it the whole time. Yeah. I found myself playing that format more, even though like the draft format was fake and my opponents didn't have real decks or it would be like, oh, you've won too much. We're going to start cheating against you. You know, it was just like <laughs> all fake games and the prizes weren't good. Right. So it was just like all of this stuff. But I was like, I found myself just like playing that format more. And yeah. I, I think that that is a big, big part of the reason why it's just like it, it wasn't that it was super fast or anything, but it was just like consistently at a pace that I could engage with. Yeah, going back quite a few years, I'm going to date myself here a little bit, but pre-leagues on Magic Online, I used to be a big fan of double queuing. And I'm a little bit of a hypocrite here because I very much don't like playing against other people that are doing this. So I will acknowledge the hypocrisy with all of that. But playing multiple matches at a time was always something that I, I was found doing. And doing one thing at a time is not something I can usually handle. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I mean, the potential pro Twitch argument for that is like, oh, you get to interact with people and play magic. And so it does sort of help in that regard. It's, it's very rare that you feel like uh, you're hurting for stuff to pay attention to or to address or whatever, but they're all also like very disparate things and not necessarily like the problem is, is like when you're sort of forced to engage in a thing that you don't really want to engage in, that's when you sort of like check out, right? Yeah, it makes things really difficult. And yeah, we've talked so, about, we've hit on this a few times, but my autopilot in general is not very good. So that's something I'm always very nervous about. It's like the second I get distracted, I'm I'm absolutely going to make a fool of myself. <laughs> yeah, so your opponent is taking a long time. You're looking at chat. Chat is, you know, maybe saying head-ass shit. Maybe they are asking you the same question for the 10th time that day. Or maybe they're just like not doing anything. And it's just like, those are the situations I, I find myself where I'm like annoyed by what is going on in chat and the fact that my opponent is, you know, maybe playing slow or whatever. And it's just like, I'm just off of all of this. Yeah. Questioning your life decisions on how you got here. Yeah. I, you're, you're like signing up to engage in a bunch of stuff that, uh, I don't know, just like kind of like gives you the icks or whatever as far, as far as like an ADHD person is concerned. Yeah. It's interesting. I haven't actually experienced it or done it myself. So maybe it's a path we go down at some point. I I stream quite a bit on Discord with small groups of friends, but that's a very different experience. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, those are those are people that you're signing up to engage with, right? Yep. Absolutely. And people that already know how silly and foolish I am. So there's no fear or anxiety of embarrassing myself further. Yeah. I I mean, I will say that streaming with someone else is a worst product for the viewer i think but is way easier for the the streamer you know yeah i think it's harder to do well i don't i don't necessarily agree that it's always a worse product on average um or it doesn't have to be but i I do think it's harder to do well yeah anyway so jerry t podcast with dave shields uh we'll get around to changing the logo at some point i'm not going to do that for a while probably maybe ever we'll see but, uh, is this a is this a ploy to make some merch or some swag with your name your likeness on it? No, see that that's that's another issue. Is like I don't I don't want that shit out there in the world, man. It's just it's it's weird. I'm envisioning a Brian Kibler style 
play mat yeah. of you sprawled out across right? it. And, and that's exactly the type of stuff that I want to avoid, you know? We'll, we'll see if there's any demand for it. And if there is, it might be something we can make happen. The, the problem is, is that if there is a demand for it, I feel even worse. Because I'm like, please don't buy this. I would be very entertained by all of this. So I'm kind of excited about the prospect of this. And certainly reach out if you're interested and let us know. No, nah, don't do that. All right. Uh, so this weekend, the time has come, my friends. It is SCG Cincinnati. And we got a little team tournament we got to play in. Pioneer Modern Legacy. Um, I'm actually pretty excited. Uh, yeah, I'm a little frustrated. You said we got to play in. Like, it's something that we're really twisting your arm to have to because I'm pretty excited about it too. Um, and I think it's an opportunity. Yeah, you're right. I don't know if, if that's like a Freudian thing. <laughs> but I, I could have chosen my words better. You are correct. All right. Uh, so it's coming up. We're both excited. I don't know how your brother's feeling. I haven't really talked to him. He's excited as well. Um, I think any, any sort of opportunity to play Magic where there's some level of investment and commitment is exciting for all of us. I, I joke around. I, I really enjoy playing Magic just to feel something, right? So uh, being team, team events have a way of bringing out that level of investment from I think everybody just given that you're not just playing for yourself but for others so I, that level of commitment is what I find exciting and appealing and it, it's exciting yeah I kind of I kind of hate that though it's too much yeah it's a lot like you do well under pressure you'll be fine I I mostly yeah I think so but it it's so much easier to just like lose on your own terms but then like losing and then costing your friends their matches too as a result it's just so brutal well the good news is we're not going to hold it against you but what i can promise you is i hold it against me i know that no one holds it it's all stuff that i put on myself i understand that what i will certainly hold against you is if we try to drop with only one loss in the tournament because that's certainly things that won't be happening anymore no no uh again like i i am playing for the team whatever Whatever selfish motivations I may have when I'm playing by myself goes out the window. Like those, those are no longer applicable. That's the best part of it. So yeah, I mean, y'all, y'all are forcing me to be responsible, which is good. You know, I am going to be, uh, maybe not at my, at my best, not at my peak or whatever, but I'm going to try and be there, you know? There, there's certainly a lot going on in all the formats as well, as we'll get into more, but it's a, it's, it's an exciting time. Yeah. So the, the first thing I want to talk about is just deck selection in general, which I think is maybe a thing that is oversaturated. I think people maybe talk about this a lot now, but I think that is a thing that is also maybe more important than people give it credit for. And is a pretty good way to get to know someone, honestly. Uh, like talking to Brian about his deck selection, for example, it's like he will often know what maybe the the correct thing is, but then we'll be like, well, I'm going to play blue white control, no win conditions or whatever, or I'm going to play amulet because I have it all in foil. And he's very self-aware about these things, which is good. But having the discussions like these with the people who are not self-aware is a complete trip. It's uh, I think it's an overlooked aspect. I'm with you on the oversaturation, but I think that a lot of the discussions and the discourse on it focus on a lot of the wrong points. 
Um, and I certainly think it's an area where a lot of people throw away a lot of percentage points uh, at the competitive levels. I certainly have historically as well. Yes. And we were, we were kind of talking about this uh, pre-podcast where <laughs> we were talking about how many times each of us has registered like mono red in a pro tour. And I think that they came at very different times in our careers. Like you mentioned that you were playing it because you sold yourself short and just thought that you needed to play like a simpler deck at the pro tour because you would just get outplayed or whatever. And then my stint of playing mono red came at the end where I was just trying to like play the best deck. So I was like, yeah, runaway steamkin experimental frenzy. Let's go. Yeah. It's um, it's interesting. I've certainly most of my, the times I chose to play mono red were regrettable and I wish I was doing it for better reasons than I did. And these are things that I've reflected back on many years later. And like you said, I, I definitely sold myself short and thought that I needed to kind of find almost training wheels, if you will, at that level. And I wish I stayed true to who I was and played and the strategies and the archetypes that helped me get to that point. Um, and this is, it, it kind of feeds into some of the other conversations we've had recently about, is there a single best play in any given situation? Is there a single best deck in any format? And I'm very much a believer that the best deck for any given person is could be different than others, right? The the taking the person out of what the best deck is for that any tournament or any format or any situation, I think is a mistake. I do too, but I also feel like if you want to maximize equity long term, you do your best to be well rounded. So say that there there is a person whose modern experiences is only playing Merktide or whatever. It's like, yeah, okay, I guess their best choice for this weekend is Merktide. But realistically, you should make it so that is no longer the case and that they have a little bit broader of a range. So that's that's why I don't really like that argument that much because it's taking a very small window view into deck selection for a person and is also not encouraging them to like fix that going forward. Yeah, I'm with you. And I'm really big on trying to do it for the right reasons, right? So I think being self-aware of that is the most important part here. And there's one angle of like, do you want to just try to win the tournament that you're playing? And playing the deck you're the most familiar with is almost assuredly the best way to do that. There's a slight step forward from that of like, you're going to be playing a format for a season. Maybe there's a three-month stretch where you're going to be playing a lot of Pioneer. Yep. So learning a new deck for that format could evolve your thoughts. And then there's the, do I just want to improve as a Magic player in general? And what deck is the best for me to be able to do that? And I think each of these things might propose different options as being the best for those situations. And I think that the average person should be more deliberate about which of these they're trying to do. I agree with that. So where do you think you are? I'm old and I don't like new things. <laughs> uh, same. Yeah. Uh, definitely a, a lot of the decks that maybe not ones that I register in tournaments necessarily, but certainly the way I go about building decks is like trying to recreate some of the same sort of interactions or like feelings I had of things that I'm nostalgic for, you know? Yeah, we're just, you know, in our 30s and 40s and wearing band t-shirts from our teenage years. Yeah. And like it's it's basically like I'm I'm painting the same picture 10 times in a row effectively. It's just like <laughs> not dude, you should you should probably do something else. And I'm like, "But I like this one." You know? Yeah. It, it it's interesting too. Like I I think we're both somewhat similar in this and I'm certainly more of an extreme on it, but my strength I think in magic comes from tuning decks, not brewing decks. So it's very rare for me to pick up and 
create a totally unorthodox archetype. And I, there's been some exceptions to that historically, but um, I'll usually try to find some sort of reactive blue deck that fits my style and then look for opportunities to adjust it to kind of match or fit whatever a metagame is doing. Yeah. And I, I think that a lot of me, you know, rising to prominence, whatever you want to call it, a lot of my success came on the back of me playing things like uh, Cobblade and Delver and it looked like, oh, Jerry was just willing to play the best deck every weekend. And no, I was in the same trap as you, where it was like, I'm playing whatever the best blue deck is, and that happens to be the best thing. And yeah. so that would work out some of the time. And certainly if a deck is dominant for two years or whatever, it's going to work out pretty damn well. But then you fast forward a couple more years and it's like, all right, you know, Flash is good here and there but it wasn't good certainly for the entire length that i was playing it you know yeah and you just you you need to branch out you need to get away from that stuff and also be a little bit more aware of why you're making the decisions and and what that's doing to you because at the time i certainly thought like oh I'm, yeah i'm just playing the best deck or whatever and it was like nah man like aetherling war leaders helix like these are not the best things to be doing in this format <laughs> not not strong cards in this day and age they're almost embarrassing to think about yeah um, it was like when when i would like draw them in my opening hand i'm just like ooh, this is like clunky and bad but like i guess if my opponent gives me a couple extra turns like yeah we're we're really doing it but that's not generally how it plays out it's a great way to go nine and seven yes exactly so it's, it's interesting your rise to prominence because from my perspective and i don't think we've ever had this conversation your rise to prominence was largely as a limited player yeah so that was like my success and getting on the pro tour gravy train or whatever but then it was a lot of failure to make day twos at pro tours you know so it's maybe how people start to recognize me but it's not when people start to like actually respect you fair and I don't know. You know, things things were different back then. It was like you, you didn't have people watching streams at home and and rooting for people. And certainly, if that was just predicated on limited events or whatever, you know, like no one would would care who I was. Especially since it was like oh, I do well in one tournament a year or something. Yeah, the early two thousand Jerry T limited master in the beanie. I can picture it right now. Yes. Yeah, that that was me just drafting all the time on Magic Online. I I still found a lot of time to play constructed too, but uh I definitely drafted like every single format that came out upwards of 50 to 100 times, you know, and that's a lot. Yeah, those were the days. I still remember <laughs> the day where Chris Pecula sat next to me in an 8-4 and he passed me a breeding pool and I just laughed, just <laughs> cackled. <laughs> I was like this guy just must be rich. He just passed me $20. Yeah. yeah, good times. But uh, a lot of it was just not being real with myself and convincing myself that I was making good decisions when certainly the results oftentimes would say otherwise. And I I would like to think that I'm in a better place now. And when I came back from Wizards was really when I tried to turn that around and start making better decisions. Uh, just had a lot of time certainly to reflect on, you know, the past and mistakes that I made and 
come to a lot of more like grown up conclusions about things. And then after Wizards, you see me playing things like Mono Green Devotion and like going deep in Pro Tours and like Grand Prix and stuff like that. And I would have never done that, you know, five years earlier or anything. So, and that eventually ends with like me playing zombies at a Pro Tour, right? When that was just like, oh, the little kid Moto deck, ha ha ha. So t- tell me about that zombies deck for a minute. Did you realize going into that Pro Tour how well positioned it was? So this was a format where you could play things like Etherworks Marvel, and that deck was getting kind of scary because it was getting sort of back to the old point where it was good when they could be hybridized, be like sort of mid-range, but also have this massive power spike. Because when Emrakul the Promised End promised end rotated then you just had to play ulamog which was like not castable and uh just kind of like left you in this all-in combo position so like that deck was pretty bad but then eventually got to a point where it was like sort of hybridized with team or energy and uh people were playing like some torrential gear hulks and like other fair cards that played and so like that was basically like this really cool powerful thing that you could already do and so i was testing that a lot and then there were things like Mardu vehicles that were that were also still legal and green black constrictor deck like a lot of powerful decks and the the thing that I kept running into was just like playing against zombies in these uh leagues on Magic Online and just getting beaten up by them a lot of the time and eventually instead of just like writing it off like I might have back in the day I was just like oh I'm actually going to like try this and try and fix up the list too and that was uh a, a big part of it where I didn't change much from what people had going on, like maybe 10 cards in the main deck or whatever, but I think that they're pretty meaningful changes. And it went from me just like making fun of the deck uh, and then losing to it and to just uh, being like, oh, no, this is the thing that I have to respect and and try. And I I didn't think that I was going to win the PT or anything, but I was like, no, this is like a deck that I could pretty easily top 50 with because I think it's very good. Yeah, so your confidence level going to that event was pretty reasonably high yeah i knew that i was making a good choice and obviously in in the split format pro tours a lot of it hinges on how well you do in draft and everything too but also just being a lot more methodical and tempered and not not messing around as much in limited and like amonkhet limited had plenty of ways for you to kind of get lost in the sauce you know and i I went five one in limited and uh, got to got to ID in the last round, but my my opponent didn't necessarily have to ID with me, so I still got kind of fortunate to top eight. Yeah, so it's it wasn't like I I crushed it with zombies or anything, but the the deck did exactly what it needed to do. Yeah, so I think for for the average person in the average situation, even for advice for my myself going forward, I I think what we're saying is with deck selection, try to be really deliberate and self-aware about why you're making the decisions that you are and maybe potentially change and expand on that. Um, And if your goal is to kind of improve and grow, then just jamming the same types of decks over and over again might not be the best way to do that. Right. And I think the best way to do this is to experiment outside of tournaments, assuming that you have the time to, because when you're, you're playing in a thing that matters, uh, whether it's like a, a, a local Grand Prix finally comes to your town or there's like the one PTQ you get to play in per season, like experimenting in, in those sorts of events when you don't get many chances 
is not going to lead to a lot of feel good scenarios. Like you're going to play some rounds, you're going to learn a bunch of stuff, but you're still not going to be at the level of kind of like expertise that you need to in order to play a similar deck in the future. You know, you still need to practice a decent amount outside of the events. So I like sticking with what you know, doing the thing that you described where it's like, what is the best deck for me to play personally in this event and doing that. But like, you need to be working on the other stuff outside of it if, if and when you have time. Yeah, I would agree. And I found the most, one of the most valuable things for me is, is having a partner or a teammate in all of this and having somebody that I can discuss situations or uh, whether it's sideboarding strategies or play patterns with somebody else has been like monumental in my approach to learning decks that maybe were outside of my wheelhouse or comfort zone. Right. And I've, I've had a lot of friends over the years and th- this is sort of you know, me, me talking about like, oh, I wish I could have worked with you for more events because I knew that we were on the same blue bullshit in, in all the tournaments. So like, I think that would have worked out well, but it also is really beneficial to have someone who's kind of like on the opposite end of the spectrum as you, you know, like the person who is going to advocate for playing Valakut or whatever. Yeah. I don't know how well it would have worked for us working together. We might've played some bad blue decks maybe more often than we should have, but it certainly would have been fun. It couldn't have been much worse than what we were already doing, you know? Yeah, that's fair. I, I, I mean, do remember the, us both trying to play, I think it was a blue-black control deck in the Huntmaster of the Fells block pro tour in Barcelona. Yeah, that that tournament is, it's not good. It's yeah. not good. <laughs> it didn't go well. That's the one time I, I thought of that the last time we discussed this. Uh, actually, times where we worked together. Actually, that that's, that's kind of a good example of this because what happened at that tournament was uh so like there, there were two SCG teams right one yes. of them was like the kids and the other one was like the platinum pros it was like uh you know finkel kai on one team and then like me and brad on the other or something yep and we we show up to the pro tour and i'm, I'm talking to sam who's on the other team sam black and we're both kind of like at a loss and it's like well obviously like naya rares is good but it doesn't look like fun and i was like one thing i think that would be really good is like ban hex proof. And I, I don't know if Sam was like, oh, I, I never thought about that or whatever, but it was like, I kind of like gave him the rundown of just this, this thing that I thought of off, off the top of my head, you know, it was like, Oh, here are all the cards you could play. And then I think they did some research and found like increasing savagery and stuff like that. And their team ended up just putting that together and playing with it the night before. And then just like all registering it and putting like three in the top eight or whatever. And I was like, yeah, that's probably a really good deck to play. And then I was like, I'm going to go over here and build a blue-black control deck that can't beat anyone. Yeah. I remember getting together, and I don't think we actually worked together much, but then two days-ish before the tournament, we started. We all started talking because none of us had found anything we really liked. And yeah. we knew the right problem, try to beat Wolfier Silverheart. And you and I chose to try to attack that with blue and black cards, which were not good in this format. No. And I think it's an example of if we got to do that again, being able to do it by expanding our horizons, if you will, looking at different strategies outside of our wheelhouse and finding the best Wolfier Silver Heart deck in the mirrors was actually the right way to do that. Yeah. Or or even just not even worrying that much about it. Yeah. You know, just like playing all the mythic rares and calling it a day. And I, like uh Brian Brondoon was the one who built the deck for our team, the Naya deck, and he wasn't even qualified for the PT. Yep. 
but like he he was like kind of a mid-range dude and he started playing blue decks a little bit more you know he's playing uh some more fair versions of like blue white in the Cobblade era and then certainly a lot of his legacy success came off the back of playing some like blue mid-rangey stuff like Deathblade and whatever uh but like he was also you know, he started playing like sneak and show and doing well with that sort of stuff too but like he is to his core like a green mid-range guy and he was just like yeah I just I just built uh resto my my hunt master and like no, nothing that we built could beat it uh so that was just kind of like what everyone did it was just like yeah you need you need someone else who's on the opposite end of the spectrum who's willing to build stuff like that yeah and i'm certainly not that person on this <laughs> but uh it, it, it was a deck i ended up playing i i got cold feet on the blue black deck and did end up smart my standard smart. nine seven with the you know naya mythic rares I mean, Josh showed top four his first pro tour playing that Naya deck and, yeah. you know, didn't have anything fancy as far as like the, the mirror match was concerned or whatever. He just played really well and that's it. That's, that's all it takes. Like good deck, play well, make good decisions. Uh, I, I would say, you know, try and have like a good strategy for limited, but I saw his limited decks. They're not great. He won with them, you know, and maybe that's what's important actually. Yeah, I think having a plan is probably the most important thing. So if you are going to go out and pick out a pick up a deck that's maybe outside of your real house, make sure you have a plan about how you're going to approach or attack certain matchups or whether not just a sideboard guide, but also your role in these matchups. And I think if you can think through that stuff at a high level, that's usually what I find helpful. Um, and that's usually when I can sense that I'm onto something with uh, a deck that maybe is not something I would normally play. Yeah, so let's let's get into specifics for this because I also feel like team tournaments, you have, uh, I mean, a lot of them now are basically set up like this where it's like three different constructed formats. Uh, I've played in some, uh, one of them that was like unified modern or whatever, and that was a fun experience, but you are, are kind of limited. You know, it just like gets to the point where you can't necessarily make three great choices so it's kind of weird, but for Pioneer Modern Legacy, you absolutely can. So I, I I wanted to talk about deck selection and then go through this process, like talking about what we're going to be playing in each seat, sort of to show our work, but also to just try and hold us accountable. Yeah, let's do it. And I'm interested because I still think there's quite a few things we have to figure out. So hopefully we can make some progress here. Yeah, we're not uh, completely locked in quite yet. I think that we're we're pretty close. It's just like things could break a couple different ways. So let's lead with Pioneer because maybe going to spend the least amount of time on this one, but is is also, I suppose, the relevant RCQ format. Yeah, so my brother Brian, who's our third, is playing in the tournament and he's somebody who has not played a ton of Magic historically, but has played more over the past year or two, and he's played in both of the last two Pioneer Regional Championships. So that's a natural fit. It's a format he's more familiar with and has played a lot of games in. Um, so put, having him play the Pioneer seat was the easy part. Now, what deck do we play in Pioneer was a little bit more complicated because that's a format I've never really had my finger on. I've never really been able to quite figure out. Green Devotion's not really my thing, and not his either. Um, and he's been historically a Rakdos player, but I think Rakdos' stock in general right now is at a pretty all-time low for Agreed. Pioneer. Um, 
And it's not something I think either of us are excited to have in that seat. So I think where we kind of started is like, hey, what else can we do here to be a little bit more proactive uh, in that seat? Yeah, I think if we were signing up just normal Rakdos mid-range, I would I would call that a fail. Even obviously the the chance still exists for uh, him to do pretty well because like the deck is still a 45% deck. Like you can just run a little hot or get good matchups or just play well, right? And, and have a pretty good weekend. And I think that that's fine, but I don't think that it gives us the best chance. So I would like to see something else in that seat. I don't like just writing off mono green as like, oh, it's like, this is just like not a thing that I want to be doing because it's so good. Yeah, and, and when I say write it off, listen, I, I acknowledge this is a thing I should be doing or we should be doing. And if we had a really good mono green player, I'd be very happy to lock them into that seat because um, I feel I still think that's a deck that has historically underperformed despite how dominant it's been in that format. I still think it's as, you know better than what its results have shown historically. Um, but uh, it, it's certainly a different play pattern and there's a lot of unique play patterns that if you don't have the reps with the deck are not super clear or obvious. So um, definitely one that I would be hesitant to put in the hands of a new pilot. Right. So then we, we knew that this tournament was happening for a while. Why was, was this not something that maybe he considered getting reps in with? Was it just because he knew that he was never going to play it? Cause he just, does, he's not going to enjoy it. Yeah, I think like mono green has to, like a deck like that has to be something that you very much buy into, right? And if it's not something you enjoy, just like playing games and going through the motions or what have you is not a very effective way. So if you don't find the play patterns intriguing, like I, this is something I really believe with deck choice, like what brings the best out of you? So not just like, what are you the most aware of, but what are decisions that end up being engaging for you? And as a fellow ADHD or finding something that's engaging is super critical for me as well as Brian. Yeah. And I, I agree with that, but it's like, again, if, if the goal is to win the tournaments, you have to be willing to consider all the options and to write off what is basically the best deck in the format, at least in a vacuum, I think is that's just like a classic step in the wrong direction, you know? Yeah, I don't disagree. I, I think there's some element to like magic is very much a hobby and for fun too, right? So I think if this was a pro tour and we were absolutely all in on maximizing our winning percentage at all costs, it might be a little bit different. But I think where we're at in our lives, where there's a lot of competing priorities for our time and our attention and finding something that, occupies your shower thoughts, if you will, I think is a really important thing. And finding something that gets you invested and motivated and excited to play, I think is as much of as, as important as anything for events like this. So I, I have played a lot of devotion, not in pioneer. And I think that I am good at 90% of this deck up until you get into stuff with Karn and then potentially the loops. Yeah. I think which, that, that probably is true for most people. Which, you know, is maybe a big part of the deck, but also is maybe a thing that you can't mess up that much. But I feel like if there is ever a game that potentially costs a match because I did not see a specific line or whatever, like that's kind of unacceptable. So, and again, it, that's that's something that I've I've known has existed for like a year and maybe I should have done something about it. 
Yeah. So if we were to throw you into the pioneer seat, is picking up and playing green something that you think you would do? Is that is that where you would jump to? I would would be willing to do it if we thought that it was like far and away the best choice. Yeah. But I, I would certainly caution with like, I'm I'm not going to be at 100%. Yeah. I can promise you that. I'll be close, but I won't be all the way. I will say, I think in general, comparing the formats to each other, the margins to be gained in Pioneer, I feel like are the smallest. That's true. I, I definitely agree with that. So I feel like if we're going to spend a lot of time learning new things and exploring different decks and tuning different things and coming up with unique strategies that focusing our time and attention on modern and legacy has far higher ROI. I agree with that too. I have mostly given up the whole like trying to break it mentality. I think that that is more doable in an unexplored format like legacy but for modern it is very much just about selecting the right deck for the oh yeah i'm with you I, I i'm strictly speaking in like incremental advantages here okay but i do think that like what the best deck is in the other formats modern and legacy is a lot less clear and a lot more debatable than it is in pioneer and then i even think once you select what the best decks are like the top decks, there's a lot of different ways and directions to take them. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot less kind of figured out. So what are what are the other options for Pioneer that you would consider uh, regardless of who is in that seat? Like what decks do you think are good or would be a good choice? So I feel like you need to be proactive in Pioneer to have a realistic chance. And I've been playing and failing with different variations of blue red decks and have a solid 45% win rate with them historically in general. And I think that's just the nature of that format of it's just too hard to compete with all the different angles everyone's coming at you from. So I think if we had some type of Lotus field one trick, I would be happy to put that seat in that, but that's, I think that's a very unique situation person and not a deck. I actually think is very good or well-positioned. Um, I like a lot of the newer red whitey aggro decks that are getting a lot more proactive. So um, obviously there's the, the variation with all the one mana creatures and the likes that's gotten popular, but then there's a newer red white deck that's gotten popular on magic online over the last week that focuses on Pia Nalar, which creates thopters when you play cards from exile. And I, I think that deck's super interesting and fun and one that we've put a quite a bit of time and work into over the last few days and one that I'm pretty excited about. I love this Pia. I love this play style of you really look like a beatdown deck, but you can play longer games and you have a lot of interaction. Absolutely love that. How like where is this deck positioned realistically? Like, is this a thing that is good against Rakdos, good against green, good against Lotus Field? So I think the short answer is I have no idea. And the more complicated answer and the thing that really got me excited about it was I was on the other end and I was playing blue-red against it um, over the weekend. And I just thought it was not that real of a deck and I didn't take it super seriously. And I had a phenomenal hand and a phenomenal draw against it. And I just got absolutely embarrassed. <laughs> and 
cool. That happens. Agridex, Pioneer, et cetera. No, no, no. That is the zombies experience. <laughs> yeah, that is fair. exactly it. It's like, oh, my hand is great. And then they play a Crypt Breaker and you're like, ah, oh, yeah. wait, wait a second. Hold so, on. So then we go to sideboarding and I, you know, open up a Chrome on the side and look the deck list up as I normally do when I'm playing Magic Online just to kind of help me sideboard easier. And I stared at the list for a while and I stared at my sideboard and I just had no idea what to do. Because part of me wanted to board in all my removal, cut all my card advantage spells like I would normally do against like a mono white deck. And I just couldn't do that because they had all these spells. And I had these four spell pierces and I'm staring at a deck that had Monastery, Swift, Spear, Soul, Scar, Mage, all these one mana red creatures. But they also had all these spells. So the, the, the tension that it put on me as far as how to build and tune my deck against it was what made me really think there was something there. And it, that's what prompted us to kind of pick it up and start playing with it. Yeah. Zombies experience, baby. hundred yeah. percent. Yeah. You're like, Oh, I'm just going to grind them out with spot removal. And they play like Liliana's mastery, you know, like that sort of thing. Yeah. They can kill you on turn four and they can also beat you in a 12 turn game. And that's yeah. a, you know, that's a scary thing. Yep. Uh, in, in that pro tour, I, I beat, a few resolved Ulamogs at various points with like, so, sometimes it was just like attacking through it or whatever, but sometimes it was having enough things and like dark salvationing it for 10. That is uh, not something I would have expected to come up, but yeah. And it's just like, uh, yeah, this is, this is why this deck is good. Cause you can, you play early, you look like you play early and then you can also go super long pretty easily. So yeah, and like, listen, I think one of the things, the appealing parts about this with Pioneer is if you're playing a red-black deck, like virtually all, every other person in that entire event is going to think they have a good red-black matchup. So that's the first problem. And then I think the second problem is they're all going to have a pretty refined strategy for what they're going to do against red-black, how they're going to sideboard, how they're going to approach the matchup. They're going to be well-practiced in it. Yeah. So I think that like some element of getting people out of that um, getting them out of their comfort zone, if you will, and into a situation they maybe are less practiced and rehearsed in um, is a good way to pick up some advantages. Yeah, and I think that that is that's true, but I don't want it to come across as like a rationalization. Fair. Yeah, these are subtle re- like benefits and not reasons why we should be making a decision like this. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But that, that's kind of one of those things I was talking about when you, you talk to someone who's not really self-aware and they decide on what deck they're going to play and then they rationalize it afterwards. And it's like, that's the sort of stuff that they come up with. It's like, oh, well, like mirror matches are coin flips and, you know, people aren't like practiced against this or whatever. And it's like, yeah, you still have worse matchups across the board or whatever than if you just played the Rakdos deck, you know? Yeah. And I, I, I don't, I'm... That, that sort of stuff just like sets off alarm bells. But I know what you're saying where it's like this deck has a lot of incentives and as a bonus, it also has this thing where you're talking about like the blue red experience, right? Where you're just like, ah, oh, crap, how do I sideboard? And when people are in that position, they're only going to mess it up. Yeah. Uh, what about Rakdos Sacrifice? So I think Rakdos Sacrifice is fantastic. Uh, definitely a deck that has unique play patterns again which i think is kind of the theme of pioneer a lot of very different angles that decks come from um i've played a few matches with it on magic online and i find it infuriating just to click through all of the game actions and what have you um 
but it doesn't it doesn't necessarily get better in real life either because then you run the risk of just missing triggers yeah so i i think that like the mechanics of it are something that need to be practiced and what have you so i think if that's something that you're into and that you know you play a few games with and feels good um that that's something you, you can kind of lean into and keep playing a lot more of and i i do i will say that if we had you know the pick of anybody in the world that like the best Rakdos sacrifice player in the pioneer seat is probably the thing I would jump to if we could just, you know, draft from the world. Uh, but I, I think that having a lot of reps with these decks is really important. Yeah. Uh, I, I am pretty good at this deck. I, I just, I think that it, it had its time for a couple weeks where it was very, very good. And now I think it is simply just another one of the decks that exists and it is good, but you're not getting a whole lot of like bonus percentage points from being well positioned. And just in general, the average card quality is a little bit lower too. So things like mulligans are just going to end up being more punishing or like if your draw doesn't come together as much, it's going to feel way worse than playing against something like Lotus Field or Mono Green, where it's like, you know, they can they can mulligan, stumble a little bit. They're still doing like really powerful stuff, right? But like you need kind of like a lot of pieces in play to really be able to accomplish anything powerful. Yeah. Some of your games you're just playing a draft deck. So Yeah, exactly. A lot of a lot of one mana one ones, you know? But I, I do I enjoy strategies like this. I like decks like this. I have fun playing them. Uh, I think 20-year-old me would not miss a single trigger. I'd be on top of it. And, you know, 39-year-old me, well, it's maybe a little bit of a different story, but I'll I'll do my best and I'll have fun trying. Yeah, it's an option. And fires, I guess, is like the other thing, like the fires enigmatic incarnation thing. Yeah, so uh, that one's always been a trap for me. I always think it it looks good and should do better than it does, but every time we've picked it up and played it, we've kind of fallen off the cliff and um i don't know how you feel about it but like decks like that historically for me that are a little bit too clunky that make sense on paper when everything lines up it feels great um i feel like historically underperform yeah i think it has a lot of the same problems that i'm describing with recto sacrifice where if if everything lines up and you are getting like the top percentages of your draws or whatever it feels really good but then you also just have like a lot of random Kenrith type of stuff in your deck that is not super great unless everything else is going well, you know? So if if the format was in such a place where I felt like you, you kind of needed to do something with like a massive power spike and I, I do kind of think the format is in that place now where it's like, this becomes like more of an option for me. And the the addition of Coma, I thought looked really good, where it like actually gave you a seven drop to get against Mono Green that legitimately did things. Whereas, you know, skipping into seven is maybe one of the most powerful things the deck was capable of doing. And then the things that you could get against Mono Green were just not that good. And like Coma just sort of changed everything for me. Yeah, I think for me to be really excited about playing a fire style deck, in that in the pioneer seat i think red black would have to be something we were really aiming for and expected to represent a pretty sizable portion of the metagame and i think if we're in agreement that red black is not super well positioned and in theory should be trending down and how played it is that um that takes a lot of points away from fires yeah and i i don't think that it's particularly helpful that the last 
two decks to kind of break out in Pioneer were like Boros aggro decks that yeah. <laughs> probably just like destroy this sort of thing too. So <laughs> yeah, you don't want to play any cards that cost two or less. No. Yeah. No. Yeah, I might might have to like not do like Karuga stuff or whatever. You know, maybe just actually play a little bit more fair. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's it for Pioneer. I mean, I, I think that the Boros deck is potentially a, a very good choice. Certainly being like low to the ground, proactive, having a decent amount of interaction, all that stuff is is great. It sounds great to me. Just have to make sure to get it right. You know, like have a list that's good, have plans that are good, and not walk into any big mistakes where it's just like, oh, this deck is actually like really terrible against Rectos or something. And we didn't really see that coming, you know, hopefully try and avoid that. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I think the play patterns with it too are a little bit unique um, given the amount of cards that you can play from Exile, all the different reckless impulses. That it, It's already led to some really interesting situations. So I think being well-practiced is going to be really important. Yeah, that too. But I mean, y'all have been doing it for a week and it's not that weird. You know, it's not that much different than other decks that have existed or anything. So I think it's something that you can get a handle on. Yeah. Uh, what about for modern? Because I think right now we're leaning on you in the modern seat. So where are we at? Are we still on creativity? What's going on? So we're, I'm still on creativity. Um, should I still be on creativity might be a better question than am I still on creativity? Because I think that gets a little bit more interesting. Um, I had a pretty reasonable or disappointing weekend um, in the Mox qualifier. Um, I lost my win and in for top eight i played i went I played creativity relatively similar to the list that we talked about last week i made a few last minute changes that were pretty specific for this event just based on 30 player event with a pretty predictable metagame i thought um i went three and two lost a couple of close matches could have gone either way um i still feel pretty reasonable about the deck um I think that it's nowhere close to as well positioned as it was, but the one ring matchups are more reasonable than I thought. I think there's a lot of things you can do there to make those better. Um, I think that the scam matchup's really annoying. I don't think it's necessarily good or bad, but I, I feel pretty helpless and you're kind of just there for the ride. I think it's a pretty close matchup in general, um, but it's not something I'm ex super excited to play against and scam seems to be the new hot deck in modern. Yeah. So how, how does that make you feel? I mean, if you wanted to make kind of like a soft read and be like, well, if I feel like scam is going to be overrepresented, is there a thing that I could play not just as a hard target to this, but something that is like maybe naturally good against it that is also pretty good against the rest of the format? Like, what would that deck be? That's the million dollar question. And that's certainly, I think, what's occupied the majority of my thought about modern in general is like, if I just knew scam was going to be 25% of the field, what would we do? And I wish there was a more cleaner, obvious way to punish that. And the fact of the matter is, I don't know what it is. Yeah, I don't either. So that's cool. Um, I, I think in a lot of those scenarios, it's like, well, if, if that's kind of the case, if you don't know what people can do to actually attack this deck or be good against this deck, and certainly this is the one where, you know, building sideboarding guides for like me or for like my friends to play in tournaments or whatever it's like i get to the scam matchup and it's just like I, you know there's not like a specific card 
I can really look at, there's not anything specific you can really do to just be better against this archetype sort of thing, you know? And it's like, well, that happens enough times. At what point do you start thinking like, oh, maybe I should actually be playing this deck? Yeah. And I think if you can't beat him, join him is kind of some of the conversations you and I have had recently, right? I, I think it's it's also really frustrating scam being really good in general. The cards that are good against it. La Veil of Summer is one that comes to mind that I think is really good against it. But then, you know, you're like, great, I'm on the play. I got my turn one land. I got Veil of Summer up to protect me from grief or thought season. They just put a fury into play. Yeah. Kill or, you or even like turns. Ragavan. Yeah. <laughs> it's just like, damn it. Yeah. So th- there's a lot of, the deck does a really good job of attacking from different angles. That's really hard to exploit. Like not to even mention the Blood Moon thing, which you know, really, really punishing something you have to consider, but all the cards that and the things you would do against Blood Moon are really bad against the other angles of their strategy. And it's um it's a really difficult deck to figure out how to attack. Yeah, and they have oh, a bunch of interaction. They have seasoned pyromancer to play a little bit of a longer game too. They have really good sideboard options. So uh yeah, why are we why are we not doing this? Maybe we should be. Um but I, I, I'm still, I'm still holding out. I'm still, I'm still grasping to my creativities <laughs> and my archons, um, and I'm still hopeful that. Uh, and like I said, I, I think you know, if I was to play a ten or a twenty game set against that that matchup, I feel pretty comfortable we would go, you know, even. I, I don't think that there's one side that's particularly overwhelmingly favored versus the other, but. Um, the games themselves are not as interesting as I would personally like, and I wish there was a better way to punish them. I really do. Well, if, if if you do stay on creativity, uh, are there any changes that you foresee making or like, do you plan on trying to address this matchup a little bit further under the assumption that might see it a little bit more often than everything else? Or are you just going to stick with kind of what you played last weekend? I don't think I'm going to make too many crazy changes. Um, I think some of the changes I made going into last weekend that I really liked is Elish Norn is probably the most surprising card for me that has like incredibly overperformed. So some of the changes I made post us talking last week and the tournament over the weekend is I moved away from Sundering Titan and towards Elish Norn. And that was more about going towards Elish Norn than it was away from Sundering Titan. And Elish Norn itself being able to shut off Leyline binding and solitude is pretty unbelievable. That it, it it grossly overperformed for me. It's really good in the mirror matches. It shuts off other archons, um, and it, it it became a, a pretty big liability with the Sundering Titan because you can't exactly creativity for two and hit them both. You just end up killing all your own lands too, um, which was yeah, a problem. But, like, but how bad is that? Like, do you actually end up losing those games? Like, maybe if you're super far behind, I guess, but. So uh, I think there's a couple of points that really put me over the edge here. One of them was I got my own lands blown up by a Sundering Titan, my own Sundering Titan more than once. And um, I ended up losing games that I didn't think I could have lost otherwise because I creativity in a Titan, they solituded it, and I ha- they didn't have enough lands for me to blow up. So I ended up having to kill all of my own. And that feels bad and what have you. But I think the other thing is, the decisions of when to creativity and what you're going to hit and being able to make that predictable is really important. And when you have three Archons and an Elishnorn in your deck and you're casting creativity for two, you know you're going to get two Archon triggers. Yeah. And I think that 
predictability is like really important. And the second you start having an Emrakul or a Sundering Titan or other targets in your deck, it becomes really difficult to figure out what that creativity is even going to hit and if it's the right line to take. I'm telling you, man, you got to learn to just embrace the chaos sometimes. Yeah. yeah. I did see a few lists that moved away from Archons completely, which I don't know if I can completely get behind or what have you, but um, there, there's certainly a lot to explore there. You're just talking for in the post-board games, right? Well, I saw there was a couple lists that did well over the weekend that didn't have any Archons at all. And they were playing um, Iona's and other protection creatures. And they had a whole different package. And um, I'm still Archons near and dear to my heart. And I think it's the reason that really puts this deck over the top. Um, but... Um, there, there are a lot of other things to potentially explore, but I, I feel like if, if Archon's not where you want to be, my instinct would be to move away from creativity altogether. Yeah, probably. So what are, what are the other options? Like maybe scam, but that's the thing. Like if, if we are going to scam, maybe should have started playing like a week ago or something. It's Tuesday now, not a lot of time left. Yeah. One of so one of my losses in the event was to a black green collected company deck that was playing the new Samwise combo that was uh, very, very impressive playing against it. It was a, a very close match for me, very frustrating loss, but the deck really caught me off guard with how quickly and easily it was able to combo. Um, kind of reminded me of Yawgmoth, and if I'm being honest, the first few turns of the match, I thought I was playing against a Yawgmoth deck, and it for Court of Calling, for Collected Company, for Grist, but then has a much faster combo. Um, that's able to kill a lot quicker than the Ogmoth deck is, a little bit less grindy. It's surprising to me that a deck like this can be this good in a format full of Furies and Lightning Bolts and Fatal Pushes, but it was certainly scary, and I certainly think there's something to explore there. But I think where that really led us to is you and I talking a little bit more about if we do think Scam is the deck to beat, Is where does Yawgmoth land then, and is that a direction or a place we want to be going? So the funny thing about that is that I am less clear on the specifics of Scam versus most of the decks in Modern. Like, I, I know how I have felt playing against it, but I have not picked it up myself. And I, I feel the exact same way about Yawgmoth, where I played against it a decent amount. I know how the deck works. I know how to fight it, you know, and... It's, it has gotten to a point where there's been enough innovation on the archetype stuff that I really like, where uh, the thing that st stands out to me too about this Abzan company deck is that the none of the mana creatures are able to be dinged by Bowmaster, which I think is really good. Yeah, they have Halfling and Gilded Goose instead of things like a Hierarch, right? And you can get Yawgmoth to that point now too, if you wanted to. And... I would do that. Uh, I would also be playing the one ring and no strangle root guys, just like the lightest amount of combo pieces possible, basically while just doing a bunch of powerful stuff. And I think that that'd be a good place to be, but yeah, I'm just very fuzzy on the specifics of both of those decks. So you're like asking me about the head to head and I'm just like, I have no idea. <laughs> yeah. And I'm speculating just as much as you are. Right. But I think that's one of the most appealing parts of the format in general right now. And why it's so exciting for me is not only are there new decks in the format that are evolving, but all of the ex a lot of the existing decks are also evolving and adapting to the changes. And I, I think that's really exciting to see. Yeah, it's good. And, and now it's also catching up with me where 
you know, Yawgmoth was not a very sizable portion of the metagame. And then the scam deck started showing up and like, these were my blind spots. Right. And now, uh, it is, it's caught up in so much as like, I never did the work to actually explore these things. And if I were in the modern seat and not playing legacy, then those are the things that I probably would have been doing over the last couple of weeks. But like, I've still been paying a little bit of attention as far as, you know, looking at the deck lists that are showing up and the directions that people are going. And then for Yawgmoth, I actually had some amount of inspiration where saw the Arboreal Grazer list from a few weeks ago, like that, that predated the ring. And then the newer lists that have Delighted Halfling and the One Ring and like Bowmaster, which helps with Court of Calling and stuff. And it's like, nah, I think I think we need to go a step further and just like fuse all of that together, right? Like I, I want to play Halfling Grazer and obviously Wall of Roots, but like those two as my one mana mana accelerants with rot farms and curve that up to the one ring. And I think that that'd be a great place to be. So if there was ever a position where, you know, you were kind of like waffling on the modern deck choice or the modern seat or whatever, that is the thing that I'd be looking at. And I started sketching out a list, but I haven't gotten around to actually playing with them. But yeah, it definitely adds to the excitement for modern, like gets me wanting to play a little bit more. Yeah, if um, Fury hadn't already pushed all the Thalias out of the format, Orcish Bowmaster has certainly done that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bowmaster, maybe it's not unplayable. I, I said that kind of like tongue-in-cheek or whatever. Like, I, I agree with you that it is good against one toughness things, and it is a, a thing that would make it so I did not want to play, like a Noble Hierarch kind of thing, and it would make me, make me think twice about playing Regavan, where that was just never the case. It was like... Oh, if you can convince me to play a deck that has Ragavan in it, that's already uh, a thumbs up. You know, that's an, an added bonus that you get this card that can potentially just, you know, free roll a bunch of games for you. Uh, but now it's just like, well, you know, maybe that's more of a downside these days, honestly. Yeah. And I, I think the existence of Bowmaster has pushed a few of these decks more aggressively, maybe in a direction they should have gone originally. And yeah. You know, moving away at the popularity of Fury, right? Trying to get away and increase the toughness of all your creatures, I think is really important. Yeah, and it's cool. I mean, Modern is a format where it's like, well, can't really play one mana mana accelerants anymore. What does that look like? And now we have we have Halfling, we have Gilded Goose, we have things like Arboreal Grazer that you can turn to. It's just like, it's not super clean. It doesn't look as great or maybe feel as great as just playing like hierarchs and elves and stuff or whatever, but it's like you have the tools to adapt in a format that is big as this, which just rules. Yeah, I think it's awesome. Um so I think if I'm in the modern seat, I think it's which version of creativity am I playing? And I think if that's a place we feel comfortable with and want to be, um it's a fine place to be. But if I'm being honest, creativity in modern right now feels a little bit like what black red is in pioneer which is a little bit predictable probably you know you're you're at 45 to 48 percent you have a lot of good cards but everybody's got a lot of good plans against you yeah i will say though looking over the deck lists and i i don't know how much of a difference this really makes but it does feel like people are moving away from sideboard cards that specifically target creativity. You know, I'm definitely seeing fewer hollowed moonlights and raw orvars and things of that nature showing up in people's decks. So that's a little bit of a nod in your favor, but again, that, that it's, it's different than rationalizing, right? It's like, you're making a conscious choice to play the deck. And then as a bonus, well, maybe people aren't going to be hating you as much, but like, I don't think that 
creativity is the best choice necessarily. Yeah. How do you feel about the four color decks? They were kind of the hotness a week ago and got beat up quite a bit over the last seven days. Yeah, I think I think it's fine. I think it's good as a, a default place to be, but certainly people are making their decisions based on that sort of style of deck existing, you know? And even if I were to be like, oh, I want to do the ring, you know, maybe solitude type of stuff. Like I would still be looking for a way to gain an edge in a mirror match. And I, I saw some lists that granted didn't do particularly well, but it was like get to, you know, playing the the Felidar Sahili Rai combo, you know, something that like actually allows you to get an edge in the mirror match. Right. And one of the things that's actually kind of frustrated me is the fact that Halfling works with legendary spells and Oath of Nyssa is a legendary spell that the deck has played previously and you can't really play them together because like one of the cards that you want to find is the one ring, you know? Certainly an awkward tension. So it's like, oh, well, you know, you get the Felidar combo in there. Oath of Nyssa starts looking pretty good again and that's rationalization. <laughs> that That is me doing things for the wrong reasons. Absolutely. But like, I also feel like you can build Yawgmoth in such a way where it sort of feels like the Omnath decks where you do just have this kind of combo kill. And I think the previous versions of Yawgmoth were really trying to assemble the combo, maybe not as, as quickly as possible, but it's like that's what you're playing to all the time. And the current ones are maybe a little bit easier, have a little bit more of training wheels where you're not as focused on the combo. You have a little bit more interaction, a little bit more card advantage. You can play fair games with the one ring and like that, that's a style of play that I'm comfortable with, but not really like if you made me play this collected company court of calling deck, that was just all about setting up the Samwise combo or whatever. I I don't think I would play it particularly well. Yeah, I I would agree with you. And I I think I have similar thoughts and feelings about my own abilities on that. Um, where are you at with the one ring? So like last week we had a fun hypothetical on the percentage of the decks at the pro tour that were going to contain the one ring. Yeah. It, it looked to me like the format was trending up where more and more decks were adapting them. And now it looks like people have found successful ways to kind of like go under it or ignore it or whatever. And I think that overall, that's that's a good thing. It does mean that this is a problem that can potentially be addressed. And format may just have the tools to create natural churn, you know? And maybe it just becomes a thing that people can do if they want to and not necessarily like the only thing that you're supposed to be doing. So Yeah, I have a fun stat I'll share. And there was a large modern tournament in Europe over the weekend, 676 players. And don't fact check me on the stats. I haven't validated them, but... Um, the the number of decks that had the one ring was upwards of 60%. Yeah, but you read this on the internet, so you know it's true. It, it's got to be true. Um, can't confirm or deny it in any capacity. And MTG Melee does make doing this stuff a little bit easier, right? So you can gauge the accuracy based on that. But that's quite a bit higher than the 40 to 50% range that we were discussing last week. So um, Yeah, it's I, a lot. And they also did the like conversion rate too, right? Yeah, and I think it went 64 to 62, right? Yeah. So um, still pr- pretty flat, relatively flat, um, but very interesting, that's for sure. Yeah, normally you see things like that, like really, really dip or really spike. You know, it is odd for it to just be like, no, this is this is about it. 60% is it. Yeah, I think that's the interesting 
part of this card that we talked at length about last week, which is it goes in so many different decks and strategies that I don't think it's going to be as polarizing as other cards we've seen in spots like this. Yeah. So. I mean, Tron, I guess, is a thing that we have not talked about that was pretty popular in that tournament, right? And had a pretty good conversion into day two and everything, but I don't think did very well after that. Yeah, so my my expectation would be it just ended up getting beat up by Scam quite a bit towards the end and down the stretch, and Scam was certainly the big winner from the event in general. But I think there's there's a bunch of black... Cabal Coffers decks and Tron decks that are both doing a really good job of winning that arms race that we were describing with the One Ring, where people are trying to go up and up and over the top of each other. And I think as that's happening, um, Scam does a really good job of taking advantage of that. Yeah, I agree with all that. So again, leads to the question of why are we, why are we not scamming? And, and maybe we should be. <laughs> and that's it. That that it's like, yeah, maybe we should be. Um, I'm gonna go sleeve up my Archon of Cruelties now. Yeah. Have you ever cast Renin Six though? It's really my favorite thing to do. Uh, it's it is kind of the dream card from like the Gifts Rock days. Like, could you imagine? Don't get me going. It makes me so excited. Um, and very few things make me as excited about magic as talking about Gifts Rock. <laughs> Giftsing for like putrefy smother eternal witness. So my go-to gifts package in the OG days was Cabal Therapy Genesis Living Wish Eternal Witness, which is the most dirtily, I'm yeah. just going to grind you out. There's nothing you can do about it thing. It's it's awful. It's it's like, that's usually the second gifts pile though, right? Because that means that you've basically already stabilized in order to get that amount of nonsense. Yeah, you could weave in potentially like a Raven's Crime and a Life from the Loam, right? So like a Genesis plus Cabal Therapy Living Wish Raven's Crime was a pretty reasonable package in some of the like more dirtily matchups. Yeah. I, wow. I don't think I've ever done well in a tournament where I registered Life from the Loam and Raven's Crime, just saying. I my experience have been quite a bit different and Raven's Crime I would say is probably one of my highest win rate cards registered lifetime and I have tournaments five seven years apart that include that card where I did incredibly well I I tried uh you know trust me that is <laughs> a thing that I I would want to be doing and it's like registering ornithopter it just never worked out to the point where I'm just kind of off it, you know? It's fair. All right, so modern, uh, a little shaky, I would say. I think we we know where we should go, but we're going to do the Brian thing and just, you know, go off in our corner and, and do our own little thing, potentially. Hope it works out. It, on the bright side, it's not like your deck is inherently bad. Your deck is the one that was the best like a month ago. So how bad can it be? And I wouldn't be shocked if it's the best a month from now either for whatever that's worth. Fair, but that requires you to have a lot of advanced knowledge and practice and theory and like likely changing your deck by quite a bit, I would imagine. Yeah, fair. And I, I don't think we're there. So it's like, well, you know, I'm playing a, a a bad version of a deck that is also not that good, which doesn't necessarily make me happier about the choice. Could always play four color. See, I, I think that that one's pretty bad too. I think I would rather uh, play creativity in sort of an open field, but. Okay. I'm with you. 
I'm fighting you for the legacy seat still, man. But like, <laughs> <laughs> well, okay, let's let's talk about it. We got uh, all right, legacy, legacy. Our our history in legacy, much like our history in a lot of formats, is just playing like whatever blue bullshit we can convince ourselves is good, which hilariously, yeah, led to us playing against each other in that team pro tour, playing like Grixis terrible cards against each other when we we're i think our teams were like oh four or some shit you know it's like we were getting correctly punished for that right i think that deck was reasonably positioned for that event but i'm acknowledging that i'm a little delusional yeah uh, and dude again that's the problem is like yeah. we got to be self-aware about this stuff right so when when testing for the event it was funny because I, I kept running into these these people playing like Death Shadow. And it's like Death Shadow was a thing that I did in Legacy in like 2014, right? And had a little bit of success with. And now that people had done it in modern, people were like, oh, let's let's try it in Legacy. And it's like, yeah, I've I've been down this road already. And it is just not really as good as a lot of the other stuff that you can be doing. You know? So like my Baleful Strix deck kept playing and sees like death shadows and gourmet anglers. And I was just, I was just munching on all of them. And I'm just like, where is this coming from? Cause it wasn't like it had won a tournament or whatever. And it was like, no, I was just testing against like the random CFB people in queues or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just like destroying them. And that ended up being like, Oh, the, the breakout, like cool new legacy deck from the tournaments. And I think that my deck was good against like the top tier of legacy, but legacy is also a format where, basically no deck is more than 10% of the metagame. So I'm good against like 30% of the metagame for like Rix's pile. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah. And I would call it blue soup is kind of where we've been historically in these formats. And like we talked about last week, right? Beating up on the Delver decks is always my default and the place to be. And when Delver's not actually good, I left, I found myself not knowing where I should even go. Yeah, exactly. And for the team pro tour too, it wasn't, I, I think... For a normal legacy tournament, you would probably play against more people who registered Delver because there are going to be a lot of people who were like, oh, I don't really know what to play or this isn't really my format. And they just sort of register Delver as a default. Whereas the Team Pro Tour, it's like you have three people that could play legacy. Chances are you put someone in that seat because they know the format. They know a specific deck. Maybe that deck is Delver, but maybe it's something else, you know? And yeah. so I think Delver was probably a lower representation in in that because it was a team event and uh blue soup as you would call it uh was even further away from being a good choice yeah um and that death shadow matchup was certainly one that on paper should have been great but one that i lost to more than once in that tournament oh okay cool i i don't even think we played against it um i was gonna say like <laughs> You know, I I feel like if I played against it, I would have beaten it, but I also feel like I lost the majority of my matches too. So I can't even really say that confidently, you know? Yeah. Well, it's one that you should always beat on paper, right? But that's just not actually how it plays out. And especially in a format like Legacy where the games are very frequently broken and different than what you expect. Yeah, they wasteland you, like you you mulligan, like you, you miss your land drop or whatever. They take advantage of that, you know? It's just over. Like small sample size, you can lose games like that for sure. Yeah, there's a lot of lot of ways to steal games in Legacy. So. so, in the spirit of blue souping in Legacy, I do have a Jeskai control deck that I think is legitimately good, and 
part of the problem with those decks where we're like preying on the Delver decks is usually that involved blue and black cards because of things like Baleful Strix. And this one being Jeskai, having things like Prismatic Ending, having a lot of basic lands, which normally we didn't have the luxury of playing. We could have played things like Back to Basics or Ruination, which allows you to beat up on some of the like bigger mana strategies. You know, like our soup decks were very bad against lands always, right? Yeah, and I think there's a lot of a lot to be said there, and a lot of appealing things. Um, but I think that the the challenge we've been facing is given how open the format is, building a reactive deck is can work well if you can predict what the right 15 sideboard cards are supposed to be. But I, I think every time I've built one of these, you know, blue, white, or just guy control decks in Legacy recently, my sideboard's been like 50 cards when I started. Yeah, yeah. And I'm, I'm definitely in the same place. And then you whittle it down to 15. And I think for the the Grixis side of things, like your your cyber cards are pretty good at being generally applicable. And a lot of that had to do with maybe being able to lean into proactive stuff like discard, you know, like maybe you get to play some thought seizes and him to Turox or whatever. And hopefully those are well positioned against the decks that you're playing against. Whereas this Jeskai deck, I'm just like five different elemental blasts a couple of things that are good against like artifacts and enchantments, a couple of things that are good against lands, a couple of things that are good against creatures. And it's like, ah, yeah, this like kind of has to be what my sideboard is, you know? And like that ends up being like really narrow in a lot of cases. Yeah. It's, um, it's tough. So I, I got to ask for Brian's sake, ha- have we officially put a cast to bed? Uh, no, it is just, <sighs> So like if if you wanted me to play normal eight cast, I feel like I would have a very good list for that. But I know that the best version of this deck is probably not the classical version of it. It is probably something to do with the one ring. And I have a bunch of those sketched out in addition to there being like a bunch of other ones that are already pretty successful in like the leagues and challenges and stuff to where it it feels like if you're supposed to be doing like an ancient tomb thing, you're supposed to be doing a one ring thing, which means that you're not supposed to be playing eight cast. Right. So it it would basically be like three steps away from me making a good choice. If I were to play like traditional eight cast. So it sounds like we haven't put it down yet, but maybe we should, but I, I don't, it's not because the deck is bad. It's just because of the existence of the one ring. That's all. Fair. I will say for everybody else, like you have sent me a surprisingly large number of deck lists over the last week, which has been super exciting for me. And <laughs> surprisingly large? That's like a 20th of the, the shit that I've worked on. Well, that's that's incredibly exciting. And I can tell because they're both a combination of lists that other people have played that are super interesting, as well as your own iterations on them. So clearly you've been working on things. Um, what else have you been working on? Um, I'm trying to not waste your time this is like, I live I'm, for this. This I'm is trying like to, incredibly I'm, exciting. Well, I'm trying to not brainworm you, except with the last list. I specifically said I am brainworming you by sending you this. Yeah, and it, the last list is one of my favorites. So do you want to talk about it? Wait, hold on. What? So I'm, I'm on Goldfish. I'm looking at eight cast decks. Oh, There's man. this tournament called Eternal Challenge 20. I don't know what that is. I don't either, but I'm looking at the names. It looks like a lot of European names. Okay. okay? So... Uh, and this is showing up on the 
the side tab of an eight cast list that I was looking at. And the reason I was caught off guard was because the name of one of the people is uh, Matthias Costa and they were playing eight cast. And I was like, wait, are you like bad mouthing my eight cast deck while Matt Costa is also just like playing eight cast in tournaments and <laughs> in Europe, in Europe. Yeah. Well, see, that's the thing is like, at first I thought it was like, Oh, maybe it's a typo or something. Yeah. I'm going to send this to you. This is yeah. hilarious. Just European Matt Costa. Got it. Uh, so recent tournament finishes for Matthias Costa, uh, two finishes with mono blue, a cast, and then one with Azorius Helix. I don't know what that is. I'm clicking on it. Uh, popper. I'm not going there. Yeah, Popper League. Okay. Retraction Helix and a bunch of cards. I Elusive Spell Piss. I don't know what that does. Yeah. Anyway. I have enough constructed formats to begin with. I can't. The Popper rabbit hole is not <laughs> one I've gone down. Anyway, sorry. I was like, I, I got very distracted there for a moment. <laughs> where where were we? Um. So we started to discuss 8Cast a little bit. And then I was asking you to elaborate a little bit more on some of the Oh, blue, blue blacky decks we've started to explore that you've been dabbling with. Yeah, I didn't I didn't want to waste your time with the bad stuff. I didn't want to brainworm you. But that, you did anyway. <laughs> I did with this last one, but I I gave you the caveat of exactly like I I am brainworming you, don't pay attention to this. Got it. Well, I fell for it and I kind of love it. Do you so, want to talk about it? So if we're if we're not going to do blue soup nonsense, and I will say that Staff the Storyteller is very good. Okay, just straight up, no jokes. It is a very, very good card. It is an excellent control tool. That said, yeah, Blue Soup has some weaknesses. Uh, so trying to be a little bit more disciplined, uh, trying to find like a, a Delver-E style of deck. Uh, Shadow is, is certainly among them. There are some problems with a lot of the Shadow lists. And I've been been trying to fix them. Uh, one of the ways I tried to fix it was cutting all the Death Shadows and playing in Tombs to go with my reanimates, uh, which which led to Brainworms, basically. This is not a good place to be. I'm currently 3 in a league, which is a thing that most people would use as rationalization for continuing to work on it, right? And I'm just like, no, I can tell that this is bad. Uh, this, is, this is a thing that maybe I will beat up on some people with, but this is not a thing that I'd be able to win the tournament with. Three rounds in a league is above average for you too for number of rounds played, right? It is, but when when I keep winning, I feel obligated to continue playing, even though after round two, I'm like, this is garbage. Got it. So what but, are the odds we finish all five rounds in this league? Um, it, it is entirely possible that because I don't want to finish it, I just let it sit until I get back from the tournament. But Got it. That's pretty bad because it, it leaves me of like two days of not playing Legacy, which I should probably not do. Yeah. But it, also a very high chance we finish undefeated. As in I drop now and get my money back? Yeah. yeah. Plus, a, plus a, a little treasure chest? Yeah. yeah. That's that's certainly on the table. It all depends on how I'm feeling uh, probably tomorrow. I don't think I'm going to play anymore tonight. But You did send me a screenshot of a treasure chest that you opened. Yeah, I opened a one ring. Yeah, which is just preposterous and absurdly lucky listen in order to acquire one rings i just put 500 dollars on moto okay so this is them just trying to get me to stick around a little bit and i appreciate that you know is it working i mean i'm i'm here we don't have another tournament on the docket after this one 
I mean, I wish there were more tournaments to put on the docket, and I feel like if there were any to select from, we would. So we're on the hunt for another tournament to put on the docket after this. How do you how do you feel about flying to like a random NRG event? I mean, I would do it. I'm pretty open. Like I, I so I passionately dislike connecting flights. So yeah, the good news is I live in a relatively large airport and city in Boston. And if we can get direct flights that are somewhat reasonable, I, and I mean times of the day and the week, um, I am very open to it. And I've I have flown to an NRG team event before. Okay. Uh, here's, here's another thing that I, I didn't really think about cause we, we booked a while ago before this became like a massive problem, but there are a lot of random flight delays and stuff going on. Yeah. Uh, let's not talk you... about that until after the event. We're going to okay. knock on wood here and okay. just, yeah. Okay. I'm just saying this, this might all be for not. Well, yeah. we will see. Should we have flown four people out for this just to have a contingency <laughs> plan? <laughs> and then it's like. Well, like we know that only three of them are going to make it anyway, so it's fine. <laughs> but it's like, wouldn't it feel bad if the fourth person was just like, we all showed up and it's like, all right, you know, draw straws to see who sits out. No, I'll, I'll sit out for sure, actually. Yeah. Yeah. I would shortest straw has to play Pioneer. Second shortest can sit out. Yes. No, I get I get to sit out. I'll watch all the matches. I'll hang out. I'll take pictures, you know? Yeah. It's all, funny. All... I actually find watching the matches in the team events to be like the single most unpleasant thing. And I will very frequently in team events just get up and walk away. I will get up and walk away if it's like, oh, I want to pee or smoke or whatever. Yeah. Well, one of my, so we haven't, I don't think we've played a team event together. One of my favorite things to do is to get up and walk away and then come back because then I'm legally not allowed to talk to you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Because I just, I don't ask me for help. Right. Like play yep. your own game. Right. I mean, I'm, so. I'm down with that anyway, just as a strat. It, you don't have to like get up and come back just to make it legally binding. Like, yeah. Well, well now fine. I'm not doing it because I don't want to. I'm just, I'm not doing it because I'm not allowed to. No, but you got up because you didn't want to. Let's yeah. be real. No, I, I had to use the restroom, man. Uh-huh. Yeah. yeah. So, um, I do like a lot of these blue black decks. I will say Orcish Bowmaster is continues to impress me. The more games that I play with that card, the more times I see it played. It is not going anywhere. Um, it is here to stay. It is surprisingly good against a very wide range of decks. Um, it's, it's also really good of, with Echo of Eons in my reanimator deck. <laughs> it is surprisingly good <laughs> with Echo of Eons. It's surprisingly good against Gristlebrand. Um, there's oh, just like oh, I didn't yeah. think about that. That's funny. Yeah. Um, it's just, it's surprisingly good in a lot of different situations. The The other weird tension is one of the best things you can do against an Orcus Bowmaster is to play an Orcus Bowmaster. So um, I, I don't think that card's going anywhere. And I think um, everyone that plays a good amount of Legacy should get used to seeing it quite a bit. Yeah, I got to play against Death and Taxes in uh, one of my leagues, which yeah. is great because you just, from, from the soup side of things, it's like, it's a matchup that's beatable, right? But like, you got to play a lot of cards. You can still get, you know, Wasteland ported out or whatever. And you generally don't have great answers to things like Thalia and, and Bowmasters, like actually just legit good against them. But they were like kind of cheating and they had their own Bowmasters. So, whoa, whoa. Yeah. I, I mean, people are putting Bowmaster in just all the decks. Yeah. Not, not cool. Not cool. I still won, of course, because, you know, the reanimated deck is busted naturally. Yeah. But uh, as, as far as Shadow is concerned, I had uh, some issues with some of the stock lists where they were <laughs> they're doing things that I like in a vacuum, like playing Baleful Strix in your blue black deck. I do like that. However, 
in Death Shadow, going a way that's like more controlling generally doesn't work out because you don't want to play longer games because you're already dealing yourself a bunch of damage and you have a bunch of like really bad top decks like Botsies and stuff. So I, I understand that it's more out of necessity than anything where you just need to main deck a card that's good against like Delver and mirror matches and stuff, but uh, not what I want to be doing with the deck. And now that you have Bowmaster, it means that a lot of people are just like putting Bowmaster in their Delver decks. So then Strix is not even, it's sad. It's so sad. It's the end of an era. This is like a decade long era where Baleful Strix was the best possible thing you could be doing against them. Right. And it, now I think you just can't anymore. It's very sad. Um, Baleful Strix is one thing that we both share in common of that's been one of my favorite cards and go-to staples and legacy for a very long time. And, I don't know when the le- next time I'm going to put one in my deck is, but it's certainly not going to be this weekend. Yeah. Um, I I have one in the reanimator deck as like a blue and black card to pitch. And also because I don't have, you know, the shadows in my deck. So I, I need like something to do potentially early to like interact. And it's like, uh, I guess, I guess I'm turning the baleful Strix and I'm not happy about it. It's like, what world are we living in? I don't want to live in this world. Yeah. This it's somewhat a- of a companion for you too. Yeah, exactly. Um, so yeah, Bowmaster over Strix is is good. Um, there was a list that popped up that had four griefs to go along with four reanimates, and I appreciated the the gumption, you know, trying things out. We're scamming and, people in Legacy now. Yeah, exactly. And I do like that, but there are a lot of problems with it where you you kind of just want all of your cards and also sometimes you draw a grief and not a reanimate and that feels pretty bad and so what also sometimes you have like reanimates and since you don't have like grief or maybe you didn't draw thoughtsies to like reanimate your opponent's crystal brand or something it's just like the reanimate kind of sits around for a little bit so i went through a few different configurations to try and figure out how to make this more palatable and feel more real instead of just like a, a scammy type thing where it's like, well, if it works, it's pretty good. But if it, if it doesn't, your deck just collapses. So uh, this, <laughs> this is another thing that maybe I would have figured out early earlier had I read any of the cards in the Lord of the Rings set, but there are like these land cyclers that start showing up in living end. Right. And thank God for that. Because then I was like, well, what's the black one? And it's like this six, five that uh, can only be blocked by three or more creatures. And it swamp cycles for one. And it's like, that's that's just a good threat right there. It's unblockable. Effectively, yeah. I mean, Bowmaster gets them close, you know? But even then, it's like if uh, they're triple blocking your thing, you're probably doing okay, you know? Yeah, so sw- Swamp Cycling for one is super interesting. You can get an Underground Sea. You can get a Watery Grave. There's a lot of different lands you can get. It's you get a colorless. basic Swamp against Blood Moon. It gets Swamp against Blood Moon. There's a lot of lot of appeal to this card in general, and it's a pretty good reanimate target. So um, I really do think this might actually be one of the hidden gems that really puts this deck over the top. Um, and you and I have talked quite a bit about, I- I'm really high on just reanimate in general as a card, and I think reanimate in fair decks and not reanimator decks in general has been something that's been pretty criminally underplayed historically. And the combination of Grief plus this Swamp Cycler um adds to just you know more more opportunities to be able to put reanimate in your deck yeah and it's it's just legitimately good and 
they, there's also stuff where like reanimator is popular, right? They they go like in Doom, you you let that resolve, or like they looting on one and pass or whatever, and you just steal their thing, or they they like ritual in Doom reanimate, you counter their reanimate, untap and reanimate their thing, you know, like that has come up a lot for me too, where generally those matchups are kind of hard. And now you just have this like pretty powerful way to fight them just in game one, which is nice. Yeah. And worst case, you're reanimating a one or a two drop, which is a totally reasonable play as well. Yeah. You're still going to be like interacting with your opponent's things. Uh, I think more so back in the day, it was like, you, you know, you reanimate your opponent's Tarmogoy for something and like that's good enough in a lot of spots. And obviously you don't see that card very often, but there are things like Bowmasters or just like, reanimating a drc or something that's completely fine yeah all right so tournaments in one minute what are we registering uh so ideal scenario i think like what what we should register with maybe not us as pilots but like best decks to put in every seat i think green devotion scam plus yeah legacy legacy is still a question mark for sure um i i think green devotion but more more research is necessary on the Boros deck. Got it. Okay. Uh, for Modern, I think it is tough to argue with Scam, but I do think that there's enough appealing stuff going on with the Yawgmoth, where, again, I think more research is, is kind of necessary there. And it would not surprise me if the, I don't know, like half combo Yawgmoth deck ends up being like a really good choice. And I do want to explore that a little bit. And then for legacy, I I like where the shadow list is at, where it, it feels powerful and that you have a bunch of free spells. You have a bunch of like, you know, one and two mana spells that are among the best spells you can be playing in the format. And you're, you're threatening like relatively fast kills. You have wasteland. There's a lot going for it. The downside is uh maybe doesn't, mulligan all that well because a lot of your cards are like two for winning yourself but sometimes it's just like well you know I've, I've spent all my cards on turn two and i hope that that's good enough and you you do have that aspect of things but like sometimes if you're playing a matchup where things are a little bit more grindy that can really hamper you quite a bit and then the other thing is that you don't have good ways of actually dealing with resolved permanence. You know, your opponent wins the die roll. You keep a hand with like a thought or grief as your interaction or whatever. And they chalice you on one, like that's a bad time. Right. Uh, but hopefully uh, you just make it so the games don't necessarily get to that point. But yeah, the, the shadow stuff is, is really, really good, really powerful. Uh, having this reanimate package now, where it's like you get to cast a shadow on turn two without, Having to put stuff like Street Wraith in your deck, I think the the Swamp Cycler is a big upgrade for facilitating reanimate and grief, and you know lowering the land count, getting some extra colored spells in your deck. Sideboard has some good options, but uh, doesn't necessarily solve all of your problems. But overall, I'm I'm pretty happy with it, just being like a a good version of a proactive deck. Yeah, I would agree. It's exciting. Um, I I think there's a lot to be said for um, the proactiveness of blue black in general do you do you think that we should be exploring some of the unfair and combo decks in legacy a little bit more so i don't like reanimator i i like the look of the all artifact ring deck but i do think it has a lot of the same problems with a cast where people are still playing a bunch of meltdowns and stuff and 
you know, maybe that deck is less weak to Meltdown because the average CMC of things is a little bit higher. You know, it's like, good luck killing my Basalt Monolith before I kill you or whatever. But it's it's got a lot of the same weaknesses and doesn't have counterplay. So I'm not super happy about it. And then I, I do think that Painter is very good. And that is that was like one of the decks that was on my list to like actually figure out where it's like in my range, potentially good, um, but something that I would need a few reps with for sure. What what about Doomsday? Is that has that been a card you've casted historically or something you've explored? <laughs> yeah, not not to good results. Um, <laughs> my my brain's not big enough, you know. Mm. And I think that Doomsday probably is simpler now than it was before because like the doomsday kills in vintage were so easy right because you just get like lotus yog will whatever and you you just overkill people by so much you just have so much available to you and then when i was playing doomsday it was like this really methodical nonsense with like shell dock isle and cloud of fairies setting up an emrakul and like hoping that the emrakul was good enough and hoping your opponent didn't have just like a wasteland in play or whatever and uh, I messed it up too much, mostly because it was all pretty bad. This one with Boss's Oracle seems a lot easier, but the the thing I really don't like about Doomsday, just from uh, the the way the deck is constructed, and it's it's not a, a strike against it necessarily because you can't construct it any other way really. But it's just like it's it's a combo deck where you are still pressured to try and go off as soon as possible because of the fact that doomsday takes half your life you know like most most of the good combo decks like something like painter is like you can kind of like tread water for as long as possible and go for the combo at the last moment similarly to things like yogmoth and that usually is the best way to play them but doomsday you're just like well even though I would prefer to wait an extra turn, I have to do it now because if my opponent plays two creatures, then I'm just going to like cast Doomsday and then die, right? Yeah. So I, I really don't like that aspect of it, and that that's the thing that sort of like trips me up the most. Yeah, I have not played a ton of Doomsday. I've played a little bit to know that it was not for me, but it's um, always a scary deck to play against and one that I think is pretty reasonably positioned in Legacy currently. Yeah, I I played a really weird match against it with the Jeskai deck where they had Carpet of Flowers and also sided in a bunch of Shieldrids and I had yeah. played a Deafening Silence. Um, but they were able to do things like Ritual Out Shieldrid through the Deafening Silence, you know? Yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I saw that there's a, a version of it with Bowmasters and Shieldrids in the sideboard. And okay. they transform almost post board against you. And um, I, I love transformational sideboards like that. And I, do too. I think that stuff's awesome. Yeah. I, I could get behind that. Like if, if you were like, look, you only have to doomsday in turn one or in game one against the vast majority of people. I'd be like, okay, like maybe, maybe I could convince myself to do it. Yeah. And then um, I can sideboard into my blue soup deck. Yeah. Because they had carpet of flowers. I was like, all right, I have an Island three planes and a mountain. And I'm going to try and play the game this way. You know, <laughs> <laughs> it was just do you like you you mentioned a couple times where it's like things in legacy get really weird and it's just like almost every other game for me is like that and i love the format because of it yeah i would agree but i do think doomsday is good it is good it is scary and i was trying to do things to like counteract them and uh they were able to sidestep that a little bit with things like shieldred and uh lucky for them i just 
or unlucky for them rather. Uh, I didn't have enough cyborg cards to bring in against them. So I was like, oh, I just have to keep in all these swords to plowshares, you know? Not the best place to be. Yeah. So I, I respect those combo decks, but I, I tried to learn them in the past. You know, I played things like Alluren in a GP, which I think, again, is sort of like the Yogg thing where it's like you, you just kind of dirtle around, kill kill your opponent at the last possible second. And that stuff is okay with me. And uh, certainly Alluren has gotten to play like Baleful Strix for a very long time. So it's it's like I'm not going to discount a deck with Baleful Strix. Uh, so that's that's been on my radar. I've I've dabbled in Alluren. I feel pretty comfortable with that. The artifact combo deck, I'd be reasonably comfortable playing. I've played Sneak and Show before, and I, I think that that deck is like pretty decent now too. Um, Painter is good but difficult, and has gotten a ton of upgrades. I think uh, another deck that kind of falls under this category is like the various prison decks. There's like the Boros Initiative and the Mono Red Prison deck, and I kind of go out of my way to respect those decks in my deck building because I think that they're that good. I I think they're fantastic. I mean, yeah. They're the some of the scariest decks, if you ask me. Yeah, I'm. I just have so many hydroblasts <laughs> in yeah. all my sideboards, <laughs> mostly for them. Yeah. Uh. Also, yeah, fun stuff against them from like shadows. Just like they resolve their initiate thing, and you're like snuff out, reanimate your guy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. There's a 100%. lot of fun, fun, fun interactions. Yeah, hundred percent. Like Delver could never do stuff like that, you know. So more more things in favor of death shadow just feeling a little bit more broken yeah i can tell you if i'm in the legacy seat there's going to be four reanimates in my deck uh what 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 the rest of it looks like is debatable but uh probably fair cards not not actual reanimator but yeah uh, not not a lot of like dark rituals or whatever probably more swamp cyclers than anything good honest reanimate okay i'm not trying to do anything ridiculous yeah, I like it too. And then, like I said, you know, you get to backdoor reanimate, uh, like steal their powerful stuff. So yeah, it's, I'm not going to say okay. I'm never going to reanimate an archon, but it will probably be their archon. If yes. I'm doing it. Yeah. And I've, I've done that. Feels good. Yeah. So yeah, legacy is weird. I think, I, I think this choice is fine. And I, I think that the version of the deck that we have is pretty good and is a little bit different than what people are doing too. So it's like, I, I feel like we're innovating in in a good way, not one where it's like, oh, we're being different just for the sake of being different or whatever. It's like, no, I think we actually did like good work on this. Yeah, it's been a, a fun little journey. How do you feel about our chances? I don't know. It's weird. Like there are some team tournaments where it's like, oh, obviously like this team is doing well because they have three of the best players or whatever. And then my experience has just been like, I don't know. We have, we have three good players playing like pretty good decks and in formats that they know. And we maybe like limp into day two and like min cash or something. It's just like that sort of stuff never really comes together for me unless it's like a team sealed PTQ, like team sealed PTQ is like, it's over. You know, I would, I would bet the farm on my team versus the field. Right. But uh, team constructed has been tough, and I think a lot of it has been spewing equity on deck selection and everything. And I'm realizing now that this is just like a, a hypothetical where Jerry gives like a 30 minute preamble answer or whatever. Um, so, uh, I I don't think we're favorites, but if if we end up like 
top flooring or whatever they cut to, you know, I, I won't be shocked, but I would bet that it's on the back of you and your brother and, and not necessarily on me. Come on. You've put in quite a bit of work over the last few weeks. Doesn't I wouldn't. Mean it doesn't mean it's going to translate. It, it doesn't always. I would say the one thing we're missing that like what I've had historically when I've done well in team tournaments is a really good anchor. So usually there'll be one format that we're really confident in where mm. we have a certain player on a certain deck that we feel really good about. And I feel like that's what we're missing here. Yeah. Yeah, the the World Magic Cup that I got to play, uh, Oliver was playing Mono Red, and we thought that he was the anchor, and then it ended up being me playing, like, Sultai Constrictor or whatever, where it's like, I it came down to, like, me winning all of my matches for us to make top eight, and I lost the last one. I blew it, too. Only, got, it, only lost one, but yeah. Yeah, and it was it was all, obviously with like all of us huddled around talking about the play too, and it was just like, oh yeah, let's just do this thing that like face up loses the game. Yeah, I'm pretty convinced the more people that are involved in making a decision in the game of Magic, the worse. It's bad. I I think discussing it after the fact is cool and fun, but in in the moment, you just there's there's like a lot of time pressure going on and. You know, one person has been playing the game the entire time and is super tuned in and the other people maybe not so much. And the the one person's like train of thought can get really derailed and broken by people chiming in with things that that person had not even really considered and they hadn't considered them because they were paying attention. But now that someone from the sidelines is, is chirping up that, they need to like justify why that's bad or whatever. It's just, it's so bad. Yeah, I agree. So yeah, whenever people bring up, this is, you know, pretty off topic or whatever, but it's like, oh yeah, like this person won a PTQ because they were like playing in a room with all of their friends that have like pro tour top eights or whatever. It's just like, that makes it harder, not worse, not, not easier. You it, know, it absolutely makes it harder. And the fact that it, you're in a room with people that are also accomplished at magic, I think even exacerbates that. Yeah, because everyone's like, I know I'm right. And it's like, bro, you haven't looked at the last five turns of the game. Yeah. You know? yeah. Also, like, you know, that Pro Tour that you top eight, it was like eight years ago. <laughs> yeah, that's fair, too. Yeah. But. Yeah, I qualified for a Mox once at, uh, like, a Todd Anderson birthday party on the beach where I said I would drop as soon as I got my first loss, and it didn't come until I was 7-0. So I was like, all right, I'm kind of priced into finishing this thing or whatever. And then by the time the top eight started, everyone was like back in the house and they had been drinking all day. So I had to play this top eight with like Brad, Todd and Tom Ross, just like yelling drunk things at me the entire time. And so like someone posts a picture of like me winning surrounded by these people. And they're like, oh, obviously you did well. And it's like, I was playing on hard mode. You don't understand. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I do not give like any any credence to that whatsoever anytime someone is just like trying to give any hint of like oh you're getting like outside assistance or whatever it's just like nope your position is already invalid i've like literally lived through this and has just been terrible every time so yep totally agree what do you think our chances are i i go i waffle right um i'm pretty optimistic about our chances in these types of events going forward in general but this will be our first kind of foray into this and i think we're going to i think we're going to roll a few dice in a few formats and i think we're either going to do really well and make a deep run or we're going to miss day 2 
And I think a lot of that's going to depend on does some of these gambles that we take on these formats and decks that we take uh, pay off or not. Yeah. No, that's that's legit. I could totally see that happening. I think that the one that's most up in the air is the modern seed, but that's not that's not a bad thing necessarily. Yeah, it's funny because I think when we booked the flights to go to this, whatever that was a handful of weeks ago, it was the opposite. That was the only seat we were comfortable with. Right, yep. Yeah, so um, it's been an exciting few weeks of magic, that's for sure. Yeah, things things are changing. It's good. Uh, got a lot to think about, and I've, I've been reinvigorated, my friends. I've been playing a bunch. I've been beating up on kids in the Moto Leagues. I've been cracking hundred dollar bills and treasure chests like we're back baby yeah we're doing it and you committed to updating your twitch stream to the new name and the new branding and um maybe a, a pro tour co-stream is something in our future who knows yeah maybe so on the, on the other podcast that i did with mason he talked about that uh he said that he was going to do it but he wanted to have like a rotating group of people come through his so I may just use that as an excuse to like hang out with him for a couple hours. Yeah. But realistically, what I should probably do is just like stream my own thing. And then through part of it, we're, we're both like streaming with each other, you know, either way, anything that gets you in front of everybody, man. I know the, the hardest part, honestly, is me being awake for those hours. Because as I mentioned, Brian called me at 6 PM and I was asleep. So. Yeah. I don't know how to help you there. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I don't think anyone can help me. It's 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 all the balls in my court, you know. Yeah, not it, it, it's way harder than it sounds. So I don't belittle that in any capacity. It is. It's fine. I'll I'll pick up my my medication this week. Get back on some uh, Adderall adjacent things that generally does a pretty good job of like keeping me up for fourteen hours in a row, which then makes it so at least I'm sleeping at a scheduled time. You know, that works. All right, cool. Uh, next week's show should be interesting. I'm excited for that, too. Look forward to it. Game. Good luck. <laughs>